Okay, this morning we'll be in Romans chapter 1, so if you want to turn there, I'll be reading from verse 24 through 32. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to, to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not, not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Father, we ask for your blessing this morning as we look to your word. Lord, we pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, anoint our understanding, give us hearts to understand, ears to hear, eyes to see. I ask for your blessing and your strength and your anointing on our brother who will come and bring your word and anoint our hearts to receive it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again, and welcome back to Romans chapter 1. We've been working our way through this first chapter, and uh, for some it may seem like it's been a slow ride, but I trust that it has been a profitable one as the Lord is laying the foundation for what is to come, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that foundation cannot be laid without talking about the wrath of God. And so for these last couple of weeks, um, excluding last week when our brother and Pastor Stan was preaching in Ephesians, um, we've been looking at this wrath of God. And so today we're looking at the third installment of the wrath of God. Two weeks ago, we looked at verses 21 through 23, and specifically how man suppresses the truth of God. And we saw from those verses that he suppresses He suppresses the truth by not glorifying God as God, 
by not giving him the thanks that he is due. By suppressing, we mean, and what Paul means is to hold down or to hold back, to prevent from coming forth from ourselves. The image is that of the sun shining upon us, the glory of God. We all have seen it in creation. That's the point of this whole section of Romans is man is without his ex- without excuse because he has seen the glory of God in the created order. He's seen that God exists, number one, and he's seen his invisible attributes, his glory, if you will. And what he's done with that is he's suppressed it. He will not return that glory to praise and adoration and thanksgiving to the Lord God Almighty. Instead, he holds it back within himself. And so then we saw that God reveals his wrath against the suppressors of truth. And how he does that, we see in verse 21 and 22, that he allows man, he turns man, he gives him over to a futile mind, an empty mind, a vain mind, a mind that tries to reason of spiritual things but cannot. And a darkened heart. The foolish heart that was there in all of us because of original sin that we inherited from Adam, that wicked hard heart, God darkens even more. That's his wrath. He abandons us to the lust of our own heart. And the result is all men profess their own wisdom. Verse 22, they profess themselves wise, and in so doing, they become fools. So here we have the evidence that man is under the wrath of God. And last week, we looked at the first two evidences or proofs that man is under wrath. Number one, he professes his own wisdom. Number two, he's an idolater. He's an idolater. Look at verse 23, and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So man not only holds down the truth in suppressing it, but he trades it away. The knowledge of the true God, which is glorious, he gives away in exchange for a corrupted image, what Paul will call the lie. And so God continues to give man over to this wrath of abandonment. This morning, I'd like to give you three more proofs, three more proofs as we look at the rest of this chapter of man under the wrath of God. The first is this, that he is sexually immoral. Sexually immoral. We're going to see that in verses 24, 26, and 27. We'll also see that he's filled with the works of the flesh. Paul is going to list 21 lusts, 21 vices that are all in the non-sexual category, but that show a depraved mind. And then thirdly, we know that man is under wrath because he defies God to his own destruction. He defies God to his own destruction. So let's begin with verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So anytime we start with therefore in a sentence, that's a connecting word, and it connects us to what came immediately prior. 
And what was prior in verse 23? Idolatry. So because of the idolatry of man, God has also noticed. The word is God also gave them up to uncleanness. That presupposes that he had given them up previously, right? And as we talked about, he gave them up in verses 21 and 22 to a non-functioning mind and to a darkened heart. So this is a further um, level of abandonment, if you will. He has also given them up to uncleanness. Now, before we get into that, this idea of gave them up comes up several times in this chapter. In fact, it comes up four times. We see it in, um, uh, we saw it in verse 21. We're going to see it in verse 24, excuse me, 24, verse 26, and verse 28. So, gave them up, the word in the Greek literally means to give into the hands of another. And the idea is to give into another's power. It's to turn someone over to a judge or to judgment. In fact, it's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, when he told his disciples this. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him. There's the word. Gave him up to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to, and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. So it's to hand a prisoner over to a sentence. Let me give you some examples from scripture to develop this idea a little bit because it's so important in this chapter. Um, this is not a New Testament concept only. In fact, this, is, this comes up many times in the Old Testament. Psalm 81. Psalm 81. This was from our corporate reading this morning. Listen again to verses 11 and 12. But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So... I gave them over to their stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. You see, Israel already had a hard heart, just as we all have hard hearts because of the original sin of Adam. And so what is he doing? God is just giving them over to that hard heart, to that stubborn heart. To do what? To walk in their own counsels. That means to do what they think is right. That's a judgment. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. So, simply allowing a man to think as he wants to, and in the imagination of his evil heart, is a judgment. And again, the reason is because they wouldn't heed his voice. My people would not heed my voice. That, that means they knew his voice. They recognized it, just like we recognize God in creation, all of us. But we put the voice away. We say, I don't want to listen to you, God. God says, okay. And I'll turn away from you. Hosea chapter 4, verse 16. Here's another example. For Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Now, normally when you read about open country or wide spaces in the Old Testament, it's in the good category. It's a good thing. Like in Psalm 18, 19, when the Lord says, he also brought me, uh, the psalmist says, he also brought me out into a broad place, an open place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. But here in this context in Hosea 4, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Why would it be bad for a lamb 
to be left to himself in a wide open space because he'd separate from the flock. He'd get lost. He'd be subject to predators. You see, God delivers. He gives up to danger. That's the idea here. He gives up to danger. And why? Because they were stubborn. They would not obey. So why does God give people up to judgment? Here's the simple answer. Because they give him up. It's very simple. Those who repeatedly give God up, God gives up. Judges chapter 10, verse 13. The Lord tells the children of Israel who are only doing evil continually in his sight. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. So here, this principle of abandonment means to leave in a condition of misery. I'm not going to take you out of that condition of misery. I'm going to leave you there. And that's an abandonment as well. So he gives men up to their own counsels, which leads to death. To danger, separation and safety from the shepherd. And to abandonment. Last time, uh, if you were here, we talked about um, an illustration of the immune system, that the immune system plays a protective function in the body. It protects against disease and against invaders. And so we likened this idea of abandonment, giving over to a weakening of the immune system. What happens as the immune system weakens? Disease and infection take hold, right? So that is exactly what God is doing. He is removing the restraint, the check system, so that man is progressively exposed more and more to the ravaging effects of sin, his own sin. In Acts chapter 17, hmm, there's a passage that I think is very familiar. This is when Paul was in Athens on Mars Hill. But I think it's a potentially a misunderstood passage in some sense, because uh, when Paul comes to these Athenians and he observes all of their religiousness, he sees all these altars that they have erected. And he says, I saw one that you labeled to the unknown God. And it's him that I'm proclaiming to you. And so he describes the Lord as the one who made all things. He says in verse 26 of Acts 17, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Now, verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, some of your translations may say uh, God winked at for overlooked. These times of ignorance God winked at. I actually think that that's a bad translation because sometimes that idea of winking at something conveys the idea that you are approving of it. You're condoning. It's okay. I'm just, I'm just going to pretend that doesn't exist. That's not at all what he's talking about here. When he says that um, 
when he says these times God overlooked, he knows, he has full knowledge of what is going on, but he overlooks them in the sense that he ignores them. He abandons them. He leaves them to themselves. That's the idea. Men ignore him. These times of ignorance, again, not a lack of knowledge, but a willful disobedience to that knowledge they have. And so they ignore God and God ignores them. He leaves them alone to themselves. That is the worst thing, loved ones, that could ever happen to a person is to be separated from God. Why? Because God is the source of all life and good and happiness and joy. That means that apart from God, there's only misery and destruction. But thank God that is not the end of the story. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's the call. This is the grace of God, loved ones. He doesn't leave us in our miserable condition. He comes to us with a word of warning and he says, repent. Turn from your sins and yourself. And all the confidence that you put in, if it's not the Lord, and turn to him. That's the call. It's to wake us up. Some of you may be spiritually sleeping this morning and God is graciously bringing this prophetic word to all of us so that we would all wake up and hear the word of the Lord to come to our senses. There's a hymn that Lord willing will sing at the end of this service that I love. And uh, many of you probably know it. Do not pass me by. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. While on other men thou art calling, do not pass me by. This is the idea. Don't abandon me finally to myself. Bring me near. So in summary, this idea of giving them up, this judicial abandonment, is where we know about God from creation, but we abandon him in our thinking. So he abandons us, and he does that in our minds and in our hearts to experience the evils of our disease, which is called sin. And in our text here in Romans 1, what exactly does he give us up to? Romans 1, 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. Uncleanness. In the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Now, uncleanness is a broad word that refers to all kinds of uncleanness, physical and moral. What I found interesting in study this week is that this particular word is used in Matthew 23 to refer to the contents of a grave. Something not just dirty, but utterly foul, vile. So when God says uncleanness, that's how he looks at us in our sin as a wretched, vile, unclean thing. That's why when you think of Isaiah, uh, and where he pronounces that man's best righteousness is as an unclean thing or an unclean rag, that's what he's talking about. And notice where the uncleanness manifests itself, verse 24, in the lusts of their hearts. That's the source of our sin. It always is. It's the unclean heart Turn to Matthew chapter 15 with me. Matthew chapter 15. 
starting in verse 10. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. There's the abandonment right there. Leave them to themselves. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So notice in this list that he gives here, there's two things, adulteries and fornications, both sexual sins that come from an unclean heart. In Galatians 5.19, we see the very similar idea where Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. This is Galatians 5.19. The works of the flesh are evident, which are fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. It's not a word that we use very often. It means filthiness. So you see how uncleanness is paired with fornication and lewdness? Fornication, pornia. It's the Greek word from which we get the English word, Pornography, and it refers to any type of forbidden sexual activity. It's, it's a broad category. Lewdness, like I said, means filthiness and has the idea of excess, of someone who's given to excessive cravings, unbridled lust, especially in sexual areas. And that's exactly the connection I think that Paul is making in Romans 1.24 when he says, Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Moral uncleanness is always tied to sexual immorality, to sexual uncleanness. And notice, he says, in the lust of their hearts. Lust means strong desire. So what's the picture here? We have a strong desire, an intense craving for vileness, for evil that's in the heart of man. Already, And what's the implication? God is restraining that. And in his judgment of abandonment, he's removing that restraint so that we experience the strong lust that's already there. What's the outworking then of this cleanness that works so strongly in the heart? Well, here he says, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. He's talking about sexual immorality. To dishonor their bodies among themselves. Dishonor, to treat with contempt, to treat shamefully. Now, why would anybody do that to themselves and others? Why would anybody dishonor their own body? I mean, you remember the principle in Ephesians 5, where Paul says, Husbands, you ought to love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. 
So why here would somebody completely give themselves over to a, a contemptful and shameful treating of their own body? That tells you that this person is under wrath, right? Because sin is fundamentally irrational. He's doing something that's harming himself, and yet he thinks it's a good thing. Scripture teaches that the purpose of the body is for the Lord. The purpose of the body is for the Lord's glory. Paul says to the Corinthians, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. We were created to honor God with our whole body, even our physical body. But when we dishonor him, he gives us over to dishonor our bodies. That's the picture of abandonment again. Flee sexual immorality, Paul says. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. There it is. There's the dishonor and the contempt for one's own self. John MacArthur had a good quote in this connection. He said, there is a sense in which sexual sin destroys a person like no other because it is so intimate and entangling, corrupting on the deepest human level. I think that's exactly right. Why? Because body, mind, emotions, everything is involved in sexual sin, deeply engaged. Matthew Henry had some interesting commentary on this as well. He said, other vices may be conquered in fight. This only by flight. This sin is a peculiar, excuse me, this sin is in a peculiar manner styled uncleanness, pollution, because no sin has so much external turpitude, meaning wickedness, in it, especially in a Christian, he sins against his own body. He defiles it. He degrades it, making it one with the body of that vile creature with whom he sins. He casts vile reproach on what the Redeemer has dignified to the last degree by taking it into union with himself. It's pretty clear. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian here this morning, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own anymore. Therefore, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are the Lord's, right? We are to glorify God in our bodies. That's why Paul says, let not fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, let it not be named even once among you as is becoming saints. It's not fitting for you. This belongs to the category of uncleanness. So what are we saying here? We're saying sexual sin begins in a corrupted, unclean heart, and then it corrupts the body, physical, mind, emotions. And he not only does it to himself, but to the other person that he's involved with, right? to dishonor their bodies among themselves. He doesn't care. That's the point. He calls it love, but he's really in it for himself to gratify himself. Because true love, biblical love, God's love that we are called to love with puts the needs of others before our own needs. This kind of lust is destructive and it's vile. So here's the first point. And this is the evidence that man is under wrath. He is sexually immoral. Sexually immoral. Sexually unclean. 
And this theme of sexual immorality continues in verses 26 and 27. But first, Paul, interestingly, gives us verse 25. Look at verse 25. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This verse really builds on verse 23. It kind of piggybacks verses a couple times in this section. Verse 23 about idolatry, right? And what he's doing is he is building on the idea of exchange, exchanging that we see in verse 23. Verse 23 again says, And changed or exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and bird and four-footed animals and creeping things. And he's building on that now to hear say he exchanges the truth of God for the lie. In other words, he trades a right understanding of God for a false one, for an idol. Here in verse 25, he exchanges the truth of God that can also be rendered God who is the truth. In other words, he's trading God. He wants God out of his mind and he would rather have in its place the lie. In verse 23, he wants the image, the image of his idea, what God is. And here he wants the lie. The lie is much broader. It's anything that substitutes in the place of God, right? Previously, he said man is a suppressor of the truth, which is to say God. Here in 25, he exchanges God himself. He gives him away. Not only suppresses and holds him down, but he says, I don't want you anymore. Previously, he invents as God, his idea of God. And here, he gives himself to that God in worship and service. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what's Paul doing? He is intensifying verse 23. He's building on it. This is very important because he's going to do the exact same thing. When we get to verses 26 and 27, building, intensifying the argument. But in this connection, in verse 25, there's an interesting um, connection with Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20, there is a description of idolatry, the idolatry of man as foolishness. Just listen to verse 20. This is Isaiah 44, verse 20. He, idolatrous man, feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Now, what's this lie that he's referring to? It's the idol that he's carved and fashioned for himself. He's holding it in his right hand. Why is this idol a lie? In that same chapter, in verse 10, <laughs> he says this, Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? Who would do that? Who would give himself to something that has no benefit, ultimately? That's why this is a lie. The idol's a lie because it promises great things. Why does man fashion an idol in his mind? Because he believes it'll do something for him. It'll bring him some good, some benefit, right? But ultimately, the idol can't deliver anything. 
It's impotent. It's powerless. It's dead, just like the one who fashioned it. I think that's a good definition for sin, don't you? It promises much, but delivers nothing that we expect, only misery and destruction. And so he's exchanged God for the lie. See, man is a worshiper. He was created that way. But when he pushes God out, he becomes an idolater and worships the creation. He must because there's only one creator. So if he's not worshiping the true and living God, he's worshiping creation. And so he invents religion. Religion. And religion is his way of escaping God, not reaching God. Let me repeat that. Religion is man's way of running away from God rather than running to God as we commonly think. See, people often think that man in his primitive state started as an idolater, worshiping the host of heaven, multiple gods. And over time, he becomes more and more focused to the point where he becomes monotheistic. He worships one God. Actually, the reverse is true. He starts with the knowledge of the true God. He rejects him and becomes an idolater and fashions anything else, the lie, in its place and worships it, gives himself to it. We may not fall before a block of wood like this person in Isaiah 44 did, but people sure have their idols, don't they? Religions, cults, philosophies, pop psychology, celebrities, sports icons. How about entertainment? That's a big one today. <laughs> How big's your flat screen TV? And people give their lives to this lie, don't they? They give their time, their resources, their money. They expend the years of their life, the precious time that God has given them, and they waste it. They squander it, giving themselves to the lie. I remember hearing about an interview with a prominent um, atheistic evolutionist. And the question was put to him, how is it that you can believe in the Big Bang Theory and in the theory of macroevolution? meaning one species, one particular animal, let's say, morphing into another animal. How is it that you can believe that when there's no real science to back that up? And you know what his answer was? Because the alternative is unthinkable. By which he meant, um, God is not an option. And so, people give themselves to the lie because it's not God and they don't want him. This uh, smacks of 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, where, Tim where Paul says to Timothy, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, will heap up for themselves teachers and will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, the context of that verse has to do with false teachers and those who are giving themselves to false teaching, but the principle certainly holds in this context, right? Lie to me. Tell me what I want to hear, and I'll listen to you. But if you tell me the truth, I won't want to hear it. I'll reject you. And then Paul does something interesting in verse 25 here. He seems to bring everything to a screeching halt. He says, to exchange the truth of God for the lie, 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Period. Stop. What is he doing here? Paul is introducing a doxology, a praise. <laughs> right in the middle of this passage, he brings it to a halt and he says, God who is blessed forever. Why is he doing that? It's like Paul saying, can you believe that they would exchange the true God for a lie? How could anyone do that? God who is blessed, adored, worshipped forever. You know, it was common practice for the Jews to introduce a doxology whenever they would hear the name of God. They would stop. They would pause in praise. In fact, they wouldn't even utter the name of God, Yahweh. They wouldn't say it because it was too holy. But this is not a custom for Paul. This is not something he's just doing. He is repulsed at the idea that anyone could substitute a lie for the true, glorious, almighty God. Hmm. The corruptible for the incorruptible. So he has to clarify, God is blessed forever. Amen. And so let it be. Now, he continues, verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Okay, so for what reason? Why is God giving them up to vile passions? Because they exchanged God for the lie and worshipped and served it. This is a continuing thought. So here we have the third time that God is giving people up to abandonment. The third time. First in verse 21, then in verse 24, now here in verse 26. And what are they given up to now? To vile passions. Vile, dishonorable, disgraceful, shameful passions. Foul affections. So remember a minute ago, I said Paul intensified verse 23 to verse 25 regarding idolatry. Now he's doing the same thing from verse 24 into verses 26 and 27. He's going to intensify this idea of sexual immorality in general, as a general category, and introduce homosexual relations. It's important to understand that as we, as we discuss this, the uncleanness that Paul mentioned in verse 24 begets more uncleanness in the degenerative sense. That's the principle to keep in mind through this. This wrath burns against people and it drives them lower and lower into the depths, into the pit. Romans chapter 6, if you would turn there with me. Romans 6. Take a look at verses, starting at verse 16 of Romans 6. <clears throat> Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, 
So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Do you see here how uncleanness is linked with lawlessness? Lawlessness, John tells us, is another word for sin. In other words, all sinners are unclean. Right? Remember, God sees us as um, huh, unclean, as, as having the contents of a, of a grave, filthy, vile. Then he gives this parallel contrast. He says, so now present your members slaves of righteousness for holiness. Why? Because he's making a parallel contrast one to the other. He says, on the one hand, the uncleanness, the lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. It degenerates down. So, in the same way, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness, moving upward, becoming more and more holy. That's called sanctification. So, the, my point here is there is a degenerative nature to uncleanness, to lawlessness, it doesn't leave us where we are. It continues to drive us down. That's part of abandonment. And homosexuality is a particularly vile form of uncleanness in the category of sexual immorality. There's the intensity that he's bringing to this verse. Why? Why is it particularly vile? Because it's against nature, he says. It's an inversion of the God-given design for sexuality and for marriage. Look at verse 26 again. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Now, we may not get the sense just reading that uh, firsthand uh, in our English translations, but what he's saying there about the women is put like this, for even the women are giving themselves to this. Can you believe this? That, that's the sense he's giving. Those who have a strong mothering instinct, those who have a biological reproductivity that is innate, that is built into them, when they, the women, abandon that in favor of unnatural relations with other women, you know that she and we are under extreme wrath. Women who were generally the more conservative and reserved as compared to men with regard to sexuality. But even here, they give themselves over to homosexual relations. And don't miss, there's a play on words here. Because in verse 25, men exchanged, excuse me, men exchanged God for the lie. God here exchanges the truth of right relationships for the lie of false and perverted relationships. Because men exchange God for a lie, God says, okay, I'll give you that lie in the form of a perverted relationship. Women with women, men with men. And so he gives men and women over to this inversion of what God originally designed to be good and holy by nature, that a man and woman should be joined together as one flesh in marriage. But because man abandons God again and again, God abandons him to the depths, to the vilest passions imaginable. 
Homosexuality is a perversion of God's good design for men and women, and God hates it. He's very clear in Scripture. There are people who say, I don't see that in Scripture. Listen to Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. He hates it. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. God pronounces the death penalty prescribed for homosexual behavior. God's very clear that he will judge homosexual behavior. In Jude, verse 7, Jude says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, that's a reference to homosexual behavior, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you get the sense that God hates homosexuality and will punish it? Sorry, I'm having trouble with my mic here. This is God's word, loved ones. This is not my opinion. You may not be a homosexual or even struggling with homosexuality in any way, but let me ask you this. Are you covetous? Are you given to too much alcohol? Are you an idolater or sexually immoral? If so, then you are in danger of hellfire too. Don't miss verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. And such were some of you, Paul says. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Praise the Lord. Even among us in our own midst here, we all could be guilty of these things. So we all are in need of rescue. That's the point. Look at verse 27. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. It's pretty self-explanatory, right? But I want you to notice this. Paul says, burned in their lust for one another. Literally, they became inflamed, set on fire in their passion. Do you remember that we pointed out at the beginning of this section on the wrath of God that God is a consuming fire? That he burns, his wrath burns against all sinners and against all sin. Interesting here how the wrath of God burns in the hearts of men who are given over to vile passions to dishonor themselves and others. You see it there. They are bringing about shame and, Paul says, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. In other words, what is fitting, what is right and proper for this kind of behavior, for wandering away from the right that God has established. Well, what is that? What is that penalty of their error? The penalty, I think, takes many forms. The commentator William Hendrickson said this, 
that this wicked practice results in a harvest of bitterness has been proved again and again and is being demonstrated every day of the year. Some of the fruits are a guilty conscience, sleeplessness, emotional distress, depression, end quote. And the list goes on. Physical sickness, STDs, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. There's the immune system again in a compromised state. How does man in sin address the problem? Well, he looks for a cure, right? If he can only cure the disease, then man can continue on with his sinful conduct. He doesn't look for repentance. Don't be deceived, Paul says. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will reap of the flesh, excuse me, will reap of the flesh corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. There's the sowing and reaping principle. And of course, we know how abandonment works now. We turn away from God and he turns away from us. Listen to Matthew Henry also in this connection. When man's consciences are once seared, there are no bounds to their sins. When they set their hearts upon the gratification of their lusts, what can be expected but the most abominable sensuality and lewdness and that their horrid enormities will abound? This was the character of the Gentiles. <laughs> End quote. Why is homosexuality so serious, loved ones? Well, we've talked about how it's an inversion or a perversion of what God designed by nature to be good. It's a dishonoring to one's own body and to the body of others. But how about this? Is it not an attack on the building block of society itself? The family? The very structure that God ordained from the beginning that we should be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Of course, man in sin has his solution for that as well. But anytime you see this erosion of the family that leads to an erosion of a society that leads to an erosion of a nation who is the force that's ultimately behind all this is it not satan himself who wants to destroy all that god created which is good so here's the summary of our first point this morning i know it was a long one but it's this man under wrath is sexually immoral and that takes various forms in some cases, very extreme forms. All the picture of the wrath, the abandonment. Now, verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Even as they did not like to retain. Paul uses a very interesting word there for they did not like. He uses the word dokimos. Dokimos. You'll hear that quite a bit in the scriptures. And it's a picture of one who tests metals for purity. A dokimos would um, examine money. He was a money exchanger. And all the money that would come to him, he would look at and examine. And if it wasn't the right weight, if it didn't have the full weight of the coin, he would reject it. He would take it out of circulation. It wasn't approved. It wasn't dokimos. And so Paul is saying, even as they did not approve God to retain him in their knowledge. In other words, 
Man sees God. He knows him. He tests him. He examines him. He puts him under the microscope, as it were. And then what does he do? Rejects him. I don't want you. And so here is the fourth and the final of the give them up phrases, this idea of abandonment. God gave them over this time to a debased mind. He started again in verse 21 with an inability to reason. So he comes to wrong conclusions about himself. He professes himself wise. He then comes to wrong conclusions about who God is and what he's like because he exchanges the truth, who is God, for a lie. He comes to wrong conclusions about his affections because he worships and he serves worthlessness, the lie. And he comes to wrong conclusions about the honor and dignity that God has given us in human sexuality because he dishonors his own body and that of others. And even goes to the extreme of perverting human relations to something God never designed. And here in verse 28, God gives them over, finally, to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And loved ones, here's the irony yet again. Debased, the word is adokimos. Whenever you see a in front of a word, a in front of a word in Greek, it's the negative of that word. Dokimos, approved. Adokimos, unapproved. Rejected. God gives them over to a rejected, your translation might say reprobate, disapproved mind. In other words, man tests God and rejects him, so God gives him over to a mind that he himself has tested and rejected. God's done the rejecting. We think that we have God under the microscope. He's got us under the microscope. The arrogance of man. And he says, to do those things which are not fitting. Another translation for that is to do all manner of things that people ought never to do. That's it. Okay, so having established that, Paul now gives a list of 21 vices apart from sexual immorality that are all the result of this debased, disapproved, rejected mind. 21, you ready for this? We're going to be brief, but it's important that we go through this together because this is scripture. God wants us to know it. So here's the second point for today. Proof that man is under wrath, he's filled, filled with the works of the flesh. Filled with the works of the flesh. These are all examples of what ungodliness and unrighteousness look like in practice. So he says in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent Proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. First of all, notice being filled with all unrighteousness. He's not just saying all unrighteousness. He's saying all unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, on and on and on and on. Filled with all of this stuff. Every form of it. First is unrighteousness. We talked about that in verse 18. And we define it very simply as this. Unrighteousness is a lack of reverence for God's law. Ungodliness is a lack of reverence for God, lack of fear of the Lord. Ungodliness, excuse me, unrighteousness, 
a lack of reverence for his law. And that is the starting place for all of this other stuff. Wickedness. This describes people who take delight in doing what is wrong. Basically, evil behavior. Covetousness. That's also called greediness. People who are always overreaching, always craving for more, no matter how they get it. It doesn't matter as long as they get it. And it's a craving that can never be satisfied. It's greed, covetousness. Then maliciousness. That's general badness or depravity. It's naughtiness. It's ill will toward others or a desire to hurt other people. Full of envy. There's ill will again. Not wanting others to have what they have. That's a common one, right? Envy. It's the displeasure that one feels well up inside of himself when he sees someone else have something that gives him pleasure. That's envy. You know what's interesting about that word for envy? Phthonu in Greek. There's an F and a TH, phthonu. It's very, very similar to the next word for murder, which is phonu. Just one letter difference. Why? Because envy often leads to murder. Remember the case of Cain and Abel? 1 John 3.12, we should love one another not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. He was envious. The envy produced hate in his heart. And you remember what Jesus said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've effectively murdered him in God's eyes. Joseph's brothers might be another example, right? They were envious of him in planning his death. Strife is the next word. It means someone who is quarrelsome, someone who's belligerent, someone who just likes to argue for argument's sake. Deceit. Deceit means cunning, craftiness, guile, trickery, treachery. Someone who's very good at their craft in evil. Evil-mindedness. This word means malice or spite. Again, a desire to harm people. Whisperers. This is interesting. This is a secret slanderer. Another word for that is gossips. How often are we guilty of that? I won't tell it to your face, but I have no problem saying it in, some, in someone else's ear quietly. And then backbiters. Another word for backbiter is slanderer. In other words, what the gossips do in secret, the backbiter does in open, in the open. Haters of God, that's pretty self-explanatory. Violent. Violent means excessive pride leading one to treat others with contempt as if they are the only important person. They have such a high opinion of themselves that they treat everyone else like dirt. Proud. Those who want to outshine everyone else to show oneself above others, to be the preeminent one. Look at me. Inventors. Now, <clears throat> inventors are usually good. <laughs> we like inventors. But these are inventors of novel forms of evil. They create new ways of evil. They take delight in hurting people and destroying other people. Disobedient to parents. Hello. Are we surprised? Parents, children, <laughs> disobedient children are in the same list with all these other horrible sins, these vices. You know what the uh, penalty was for disobeying mom and dad in the Old Testament in Israel? Young ones, it was the death penalty. Hmm. 
Matthew 15, 4, Jesus said, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Huh. Undiscerning, trustworthy, unloving, merciful. Undiscerning means senseless, without understanding. These people, again, know the truth, but they're unwilling to listen. They're hard-hearted. It's the fool in Psalm 14 who says, there is no God. Not, I don't think there's a God. No, I know there's a God and there is no God. He's defiant. Untrustworthy means covenant breakers, faithless, people who break confidence and therefore are untrustworthy. Unloving, this means without natural affection. No love. These are people who, like we read of the pagans in scripture, would even offer their children as living sacrifices to their false gods. They have no natural affection. And today, what about the killing of millions of unborn babies? We create all kinds of excuses to justify that behavior. We're unloving and unmerciful without pity, just cruel. People who see great need and they turn a blind eye and walk away. Unmerciful. So as I was looking at this list, you know, of course, the first thing I want to do is try and order the list, make sense of it. How are different commentators ordering the list? And there's some interesting ways that people have ordered these lists. But let me suggest to you just a very simple ordering for this list. These are all forms of ungodliness and unrighteousness, plain and simple. Here's another way to think of them. These are all traits of the devil himself. He is the unrighteous one, wicked, malicious, envious of God's throne, and a murderer from the beginning, we're told. He's the accuser of the brethren. That is, he whispers quietly in our ears of our sins and as a backbiter in the open as well. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's crafty and treacherous. He loves contention, strife, division, especially in the church. And he hates God and wants to undermine him and to discredit our testimony as the people of God any way he can. And he'll use all his devices and his craftiness to accomplish that end. He's violent, boastful, unmerciful, and consummately disobedient to God. And he was the first created being who was lifted up with pride in his heart, the scripture tells us. Isaiah chapter 14, listen to verses 12 through 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Literally, the word for Lucifer is day star, bright and shining one. Son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. When we think of these, this list of ungodly and unrighteous behavior, let us think of who we're behaving like when we do these things. Behaving like the devil. That's why these things are so serious. 
Verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, this is verse 32 of Romans 1, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They know the righteous judgment of God. Just as they know that God exists and they put him out of their minds, they know that a day of judgment, a day of reckoning is coming. And what do they do? Ignore him, defy him to his face. They know that the righteous judgment of God is coming and that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Practice, to exercise, to be busy with. This is the key, brothers and sisters. See, we are all sinners. All of us, if we're honest, can be accused by something on the list we just read, right? But is that our practice? Is that our way of life? Is that the pattern that can be marked about us in our behavior? God help us because we have been freed from the power and the dominion of sin. We don't need to obey unrighteousness anymore. His spirit gives us the power to say no in those moments. Now, not perfectly. No one's saying we can be perfect. We can't. In this life, we always uh, will be struggling with this issue because we have unredeemed flesh. Our bodies are not yet redeemed, even though our spirits are. are. But what we do know is this. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, John says in 1 John 3, 9. That doesn't mean he doesn't sin at all. It means he doesn't practice sin. For his seed remains in him. Who's that? It's the Lord himself. The spirit of the living God abides in all who belong to Christ. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. There it is. You are secure in the Lord and have been given power to say no to sin on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. But these are those who practice such things, knowing that they deserve death, knowing that judgment is coming. And then this, not only do they do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. <laughs> There's this word, dokimos, again, in a slightly different form. And this time it means to have pleasure in, to be pleased together with, to consent and agree to, to applaud. Brothers and sisters, this is the irrationality of sin. I mean, how smart is it to know that a freight train is headed your way and you're standing on the tracks and you close your eyes, you stop your ears and you say over and over again, there is no train. There is no train. <laughs> Does that change the reality coming at you at 200 miles an hour? Not in the least. So this is the final proof that man is under wrath. He defies God to his own destruction. Was it rational for Lucifer to think in his heart that he could unseat the Most High God? Was it rational for Adam and Eve to think that they could eat a piece of fruit and be just like God? Is it rational for any man to see the truth of God and to suppress it and put it out of his mind in an act of defiance and to fashion instead 
idols and to prefer the lie and to give its worship and service and life to it? Is it rational to pervert what is good and holy in marriage and work against nature, thinking that in doing so you're actually doing something right and beautiful and celebrated, when in reality you are destroying yourselves and others? Is it rational to know that judgment is coming and that everyone who practices the things in this list we just read are deserving of death and to continue doing them to their own peril and to approve of others doing the same thing? Why is it that people won't call for a leader to step down when he's sexually immoral or when he's been implicated in scandal? Is it not because they themselves are immoral and having an immoral person in leadership puts them at ease? Hey, this is someone I can relate to. This is someone like me. They're just showing their own darkness. They are in darkness and they love the darkness, including those who practice it. They give their approval to it. John 3.19, Jesus says to Nicodemus, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. See, the light of God has come. It's come in creation. We've seen it. We've rejected it. He sent it again in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw him, and guess what we did there? We crucified him. That's rejection. This is how you know that you are under condemnation. What do you think of Jesus? Do you love him? Or do you reject him? Brothers and sisters, I know this is probably not a, an easy exercise to sit under this and listen to this teaching, but this is God's word, and he means for us to know it. And I think here's the point of this whole long laundry list of sins. We are all captured by sin, right? We're all under the wrath of God. Not one person is exempt. And our wickedness is so great that here it is, only God can rescue us. We are condemned. We are dead and hopeless. And if God himself doesn't rescue us, we will perish. But, glorious but, this is all preparation for the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know what God did so that you don't have to fall prey to this destruction we're talking about? He sent his son. He sent his son born of a virgin not a sinner, didn't receive original sin from Adam. He was conceived of the Holy Ghost to be holy. And he lived a life of holiness, a life of absolute perfection. He never once sinned. And he accrued perfect righteousness in always obeying his father. And then he went to the cross and he laid down his life in a substitutionary way. That is to say that he died in the place of sinners. And he was buried and on the third day, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And he lives now forevermore. He's raised. He's been ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes and prays for his people. If you believe that message with all your heart, if you confess him with your mouth and believe where? In your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. And for those of us who are saved, isn't it encouraging to know what we've been saved from, loved ones? From this pit of destruction and misery 
that just goes deeper and deeper. And we're seeing it in our world today all the time, aren't we? It makes us uh, cringe. It makes us sorrowful. But it should also make us compassionate. Compassionate to reach out and give a cup of water in this gospel of Jesus Christ, which alone can save a man. For there is one mediator given between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. He is the only mediator, the only intercessor, the only way that we can get back to God, to the garden where we were expelled originally. And I love this. When Paul started that whole list in verse 29, being filled with all, and it goes on. That same word for filled with is the word that he uses in Ephesians 5.18, where he says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, loved ones. Not with all these lusts and vices. That means be controlled by the Spirit. And how do we do that? Really practical terms. Read your Bible and pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. Right? Read your Bible. When you read your Bible, you are filling yourself, you're saturating yourself with the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. It's the only means that God has provided to sanctify us, to cleanse us. So avail yourselves of it. Let the Word dwell in you richly, saints. God, help us that this would be the practice of every one of us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for showing us that despite your wrath, which is real and fierce, and um, Father, drives men to be consumed by the lust of their own hearts, that in this wrath we see great patience. Because Lord, what we deserve is instantaneous death for our sin. We don't deserve opportunities, and yet you provide men with opportunities. You are patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Lord, thank you that you send warnings. You don't just abandon us finally and leave us to ourselves, but you come to us with the word of God. And you speak words of life that we might be raised from spiritual death, might be given eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand for the first time that you are God, that your word is really true, that all your enemies will ultimately be destroyed, but that your children are spared and not just spared, but loved Loved with the love of a father, tender, compassion, who clothes us in his own garments, the garments of the king, the righteousness of his own dear son, and seats us in heavenly places now so that we can be called citizens of heaven. Lord, I pray for your saints. Help them to see that they are already with you in glory and that you are bringing their bodies (laughs) there as well. Lord, we have a glorious future awaiting us. Thank you for rescuing us from the pit and help us, Lord, to share this good news with others. For those who maybe don't know you this morning, Father, work a work of salvation that only you can do. Turn the heart from stone into flesh, something soft and pliable that would feel 
and understand the word of God. I love you. I love others. Father, thank you for each one here this morning. Thank you for this time in your word. We love you and we trust that you will accomplish your mighty purposes in us for your glory and for your great namesake. Amen.